Chapter 12 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 12. It was well past dusk when he trudged up the path that led to the camp and found Ada on the watch at the outskirts of the copse, uneasy at the thought of dark alone. You've been a time, she reproached him sulkily, the whole blessed day since breakfast. I was beginning to think you'd gone and got lost, and I've had a fair ump sitting here by myself and listening to them owls. I ate their beastly screeching. It gives me the creeps. Never mind, he consoled her. Come along to the fire. I've brought you something, a present. Potatoes? Ada conjectured, still sulky. Not potatoes this time, he told her, better than vegetables, something to wear. Something to wear, she repeated, with no show of enthusiasm. I suppose that's another old blanket. Wrong again, he rejoined, amused by the contempt in her voice. She was still contemptuous when he opened his bag and tossed her a dingy bundle but as she disentangled it, saw lace and embroidery, she brightened suddenly and knelt down to examine in the firelight, while the sight of the cracked hand glass brought an instant, oh, followed by intent contemplation and much patting and twisting of hair. Theodore dished supper while he sat and pondered her reflection, and even while she ate hungrily, she had eyes and thoughts for nothing but her new possessions. Some were what he had taken them to be, underclothes for the most part of an ordinary pattern, but mingled with the plainer linen articles were one or two more decorative lace collars and the like, and it was on these, dingy as they were, that she fell with delight that was open and audible. He watched her curiously when, for the first time since he had known her, he saw her mouth widen in a smile. She was no longer inert, the sullen, lumpish Ada, she was critical, interested, alive. She fingered her treasures. She smoothed them and made guesses at their price when new. She held them up now this way, now that, for his admiration and her own. Finally, while Theodore stretched his tired length by the campfire, she ran off to her shelter for a broken scrap of comb. And when he looked up a few minutes later, she was posing self-consciously before the hand glass, with hair newly twisted and a dirty scrap of lace round her neck. She was another woman as she sat with her rags arranged to show her new frippery. Tilting the hand mirror this way and that, and twitching now at the collar and now at her straying ends of hair. Lying stretched on an arm by the fire, he watched her little feminine antics, amused and taken out of himself, realizing how seldom till that moment he had thought of her as a woman how nearly she had seemed to him an animal only, a creature to be guided and fed, and parrying her eager and insistent demand to be taken to the house where the treasure had been found, that she might see if it contained any more. He had no desire to spoil her pleasure in her finery by the gruesome tale of the manner of its finding. Hence, in spite of a curiosity made manifest in coaxing, he held to his refusal stubbornly. The house was a long way off, he told her, much further than she would care to tramp. Then, as she still persisted, 
maintaining her readiness even for a lengthy expedition, he went on to fiction and explained that the house was in a dangerous condition, knocked about, ruinous, might fall at any moment, and he was not going to say where it was for her own sake, lest she should be tempted to the peril of an entry. She pouted. You might tell me, glancing at him from under her lashes. Then, as he still persisted in refusal, slapped him on the shoulder for an obstinate boy, turned her back, and pretended to sulk. He returned the slap. She expected it and giggled. The next move in the game was his catching of her wrist as she raised her hand for a rejoinder, and for a moment they wrestled inanely, after the fashion of Hampstead Heath. As he let her go, it dawned on him that this was flirtation as she knew it. It did not take long for him to realize that they stood to each other from that night on in a new and more difficult relation. From foundling and guardian, the leader and led, they had developed into woman and man. For a time, fear and hunger had suppressed in Ada the consciousness of sex, which a yard or two of lace and the possession of a hand glass had revived. Once revived, it colored her every action, gave meaning to her every word and glance, so that, day by day and hour by hour, the man who dwelt beside her was reminded of bodily desire. One night, when she had left him, he lay staring at the fire, faced the situation, and wondered if she saw where she was drifting. Possibly, possibly not. She was acting instinctively from habit. To her, he was sure, a man was a creature to flirt with. An unsubtle attempt to arouse his desire was the only way she knew of carrying on a conversation. Now that she was woman again, not merely bewildered misery and empty stomach, she had slipped back inevitably to the little giggling allurements of her factory days, to the habits bred in her bone. With the result, he put the thought from him, turned over, dog-weary, and slept. So soon as the next night he saw the result as inevitable, the outcome of life reduced to mere animal living, of nearness, isolation, and the daily consciousness of sex. If they stayed together, and how should they not stay together? It was only a question of time, of weeks at the furthest, of days, or it might be hours. He raised himself to peer through the night at the log hut that hid and sheltered Ada, wondering if she also were awake. If so, of a certainty, her thoughts were of him, and perhaps she knew likewise that it was only a question of time. Perhaps, and perhaps she just drifted, following her instincts. He found himself wondering what she would say if she opened her eyes to find him standing at the entrance of her hut, to see him bending over her now. He put the thought from him and once more turned over and slept. With the morning, it seemed further off, less inevitable. The sun was hidden behind raw gray mist, and when Ada, shivering and stupid, turned out into the chilly discomfort of the weather, she was too much depressed for the exercise of feminine coquetry. The day's work, hard, necessary wood chopping, and equally necessary fishing for the larder, sent his thoughts into other channels, and it was not till he sat at their evening fire, warmed, fed, and rested, with no duties to distract him, that he became conscious again, and even more strongly, of the change in their attitude and intercourse. Something new of expectation had crept into it, something of excitement and constraint, 
when their hands touched by chance, they noticed it, were instantly awkward. When a silence fell, Ada was embarrassed, uncomfortable, and made palpable efforts to break it with her pointless giggle. When their eyes met, hers dropped and looked away. When she rose at last and said goodnight, he was sure that she also knew. And since they both knew, and the end was inevitable, certain. You're not going yet, he said, and caught at her wrist, laughing oddly. It's late and I'm sleepy, she objected with a foolish little giggle, but made no effort to withdraw her wrist from his hold. Nonsense, he told her. It's early yet and you're better by the fire. Sit down and keep me company for a bit longer. She giggled again, more faintly, more nervously, as she yielded to the pull of his fingers and sat down, offering no protest when instead of releasing her arm, he drew it through his own and held it pressed to his side. It was a windless night, very silent, no sound but the rush of the little stream below them, now and then a bird cry and the snap and crackle of their fire. Once or twice, Ada tried talking of a hooting owl, of a buzzing insect, for the sake, obviously, of talking, of hearing a voice through the silence. But as he answered not at all, or by monosyllables, her forced little chatter died away. Even if the thought was not conscious, he knew she was his for the taking. With her arm in his, with her body pressed close enough to feel her quickened breathing, he sat and stared into the fire, and at the last, when the inevitable was about to accomplish itself, there floated into his mental vision the delicate memory of the woman whom once he had desired. Philida, a shadow impossible, leaned out of a vanished existence as the damosel leaned out of heaven, and he looked with his civilized, his artist's eyes on the woman who was his for the taking. Ada felt that he slackened his hold on her arm, felt him shrink a little from the pressure of her leaning shoulder. What is it? she asked, uneasy, and perhaps it was the sound of her familiar voice that brought him back to primitive realities, the glow of the fire and the overarching vault of darkness, and beneath it two creatures, male and female, alone with nature, subject only to the laws of her instinct. The vision of a dead world, a dead woman, faded, and he looked no more through the fastidious eyes of the civilized. Man civilized is various, divided from his kind by many barriers, of taste, of speech, of habit of mind and breeding. Man living as the brute is cut to one pattern, the pattern of his simple needs and lusts. The warm shoulder pressed him, and he drew it the closer. He was a man in a world of much labor and instinct, who sweated through the seasons and wearied, whose pains were of the body, whose pleasures of the body, and alone in the night with a mate. Eh, what's that for, she asked, making semblance of a protest as his hand went round her head and he pressed her cheek against his lips. He said, you, and laughed oddly again. End of chapter 12. Recording by Jennifer Mazzocchi.